Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I want to tell you today about a narrative that we all bear within us. And it's particularly important as we realize that next Friday evening is the first Seder. The narrative that you all know about Judaism is simply this. They hated us. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. That defines so many Jewish holidays. And for many people, it defines Pesach as well. That is the story that we tell. But in this particular talk, which is about righteous Gentiles in the Hebrew Bible, which is based on my book of the same name, I want to take apart that narrative, and I want to help you understand that Pesach and the exodus from Egypt could not have come into existence were it not for the intervention of three non-Israelite women. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to ask you to invite them spiritually to your Seder. But first, I think I have to talk to you a little bit about why it is that I became so interested in this topic. I was raised with that version of Jewish history. They all hate us. I was raised with an idea that we Jews have always been victims, and that if you scratch a Gentile, you'll find an anti-Semite. I'm happy to say that that version of Jewish history no longer exists for most people. If I speak to my children, if I speak to my younger students, they don't believe that. They've never heard that. And from time to time, when anti-Semitism re-emerges and re-erupts in the news, it doesn't surprise us, though it saddens us. When I was a young boy, around 10 years old, one of my close friends had an old woman who lived in his house. Her name was Anya. I always assumed that Anya was my friend's grandmother. She spoke only Polish. One day he told me that Anya was not his grandmother. In fact, as he described it, she was the woman who had hid his mother in a closet during the war. Anya was a righteous Gentile. She was a Polish woman 
who had saved my friend's mother, and in gratitude, they had brought her over to the United States. Several years later, after my friend became bar mitzvah, the family decided to make aliyah. And when years later I went to Israel for the first time to study for the rabbinate, you can be sure that one of the first phone calls I made was to my friend's family. And you can be sure that one of the first questions I asked was, what happened to the old woman? And my friend's mother unrolled this scroll for me. She said, when we prepared to move to Israel, my husband said to her that he would buy a house for her on Long Island. The house would be fully paid for. All her utility bills would be paid for. All of her groceries would be paid for. All of her living expenses, all of her clothing, all of her entertainment, she would never have to spend another dime on anything. But Anya said to him, no, you're my family. Wherever you go, I will go. She did not realize that she was echoing the words of the biblical Ruth who said to her mother-in-law, wherever you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. Anya came with my friend's family to Israel, and she died there. And she was buried there in a Christian cemetery. I tell you that story because it frames what we're going to do today. I tell you that story because it is an interesting, painful bittersweet and ironic counter-melody to what has been coming out of Poland recently, where mere discussion of Polish collusion in the Shoah is now illegal. You cannot tell the story of the people who killed Jews and stood by as Jews were killed without telling the story of the righteous Gentiles who saved Jewish lives. As a footnote, I will say that the story of the Poles and the Shoah is a very complicated story. It is not an easy story to untangle. Poles died in Auschwitz, as well as Jews. There were no Polish guards in the concentration camps. The Nazis used Ukrainians, Latvians, Lithuanians. The Poles had a deep anti-Semitic tradition, except for those who didn't. There were Catholic priests in Poland who hated the Jews. There were Catholic priests and Jews who did not hate the Jews. There were Catholic priests in Poland who believed that it was a religious, sacred, Christian duty to stand up for the Jews, and there were others who believed that it was a Christian duty to look the other way. It is a very complicated, twisted story that is very hard to untangle. That story from my childhood sent me on a mission, which was the following. Again, I know the names of the enemies of our people. And I know the names of all the biblical villains who are enemies of our people. I could say to you the names of Levan, the father-in-law and uncle of Jacob, who is a paradigmatic anti-Semite, and Amalek, and Pharaoh, and Goliath, and 
all these bad people. But I became convinced that that story is profoundly incomplete. That if we tell our children and if we tell ourselves that our story is an unremitting story of darkness, why would anyone want to be part of that great saga? And so I went on a search. I went on a search for Gentiles in the Hebrew Bible who were good to the Israelites. And I discovered that they were far more than I had ever imagined and that those stories had to be redeemed. And so I'd like to invite you to join me as we prepare for Pesach together. Now most people, when they prepare for Pesach, they clean the chametz out of their houses, they buy matzah in quantity, they buy macaroons, they figure out where the Haggadot are. But I'm going to invite you into a different way of preparing for Pesach. As I said to you earlier, I'm going to show you the story of three Gentile women who were part of the story of the Exodus. Now, I must begin by telling you this. Two of the women, that is to say two of the three, 66% of them, have a somewhat questionable identity. But I'm going to show them to you anyway. My dear friends, now that you have the chumash in your hands, if I can invite you to turn to page 346, to the opening verses of the book of Exodus. Having gotten us into Egypt, having come into Egypt with Joseph, as Joseph brought his brothers and his father in, the Israelites have stayed in Egypt and they have become comfortable and they have grown and multiplied. Let's jump to verse 8. And here we are, my friends. I'm going to introduce you to micro-Jewish history. Every history of the Jews in every community that they've lived in, written right here. Are you ready? A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? A new king arose. By the way, it's not only about politics. It can also be about a new boss, a new supervisor. A new king came in, didn't know all the good stuff I did, fired me. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. There are too many of them. Let us deal shrewdly with them so they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. Now here, my friends, we have a problematic phrase. The fear is that they will Allah min ha'aretz, which could mean that they will rise from the ground. But there's another biblical idiom that we need to remember. Allah, as in to make aliyah, can mean to emigrate to the land of Israel. 
And so there could be the fear that there'll be so many of them that they'll rise from the ground, or there'll be so many of them that they will, in fact, leave Egypt. But notice something. In the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us. My friends, I would now like to show you that is the first anti-Semitic slur in history. And what do you call that? What is that accusation? The accusation of? Of what? No, not freedom at all. Oh, treason. Treason, thank you. The dual loyalty charge. The Jews aren't loyal. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh Pitom and Ramses. No, by the way, we did not build the pyramids. You just forget about that. Don't tell that story at your Seder. The pyramids were there for about a thousand years before we ever set foot in Egypt. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform ruthlessly. They made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. And now, my friends, I want to introduce you to the first two of the three women that I told you we would discuss today. I want to introduce you to Shifra and Pua. And as I do so, I'm going to show you a remarkable piece of Hebrew grammar that will drive you nuts because it has driven generations of biblical commentators nuts as well. Here goes. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. By the way, what's the name of the king? We don't know. This is the book of Shemot, the book of names. No names. Well, we have the names of the Israelites who came into Egypt. We don't have the name of the king. But now we're going to meet these two women. They have names. One of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Now I'm going to show you something. First of all, what is clear here is that these midwives were the inventor of something very important that exists to this day. And that is that they were the inventors of a tradition that in America was developed by Thoreau and by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and in India by Gandhi. They invented civil disobedience. 
it is very interesting and telling that depending on the way the Hebrew calendar plays out in any given year, it is often the case that this Torah portion is read on the Shabbat of the birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And since, by the way, in just a few weeks, on April 4th, we will be marking his 50th yard site. It is important for us to bring him into the conversation. And because in just several days, our young people and our not-so-young people will be marching in hundreds of cities across this country, marching for their lives, they are walking in this path. So Shifra and Pua invented civil disobedience. Number one. Please do, and I will repeat the question for the sake of those who are listening on the podcast. In verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Yes. Why should we doubt that they were Hebrew? Oh my gosh, the question is, the text says the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other poor. Why would we doubt that they are Hebrew? That's a good question. And you ask that question only one minute too soon. It's okay. So now I'm going to introduce you to a very perplexing problem. Are you ready? First of all, the word Hebrew, Ivri, is an interesting word. Believe it or not, on my shelf I have an entire book just on this phrase. Now, Ivri can be a Hebrew, it can be a foreigner, it can be someone who doesn't have power. In other words, it could be both the name of a people and it could be the name of a class of people who just didn't quite fit in. The word Ivri from the word Avar on the other side. Abraham is called an Ivri. The prophet Jonah identifies himself as an Ivri. In general, the term Ivri is used as a way of juxtaposing Israelites or almost Israelites with people who aren't. It's very interesting, by the way, about the word Hebrew. For many years in this country, in the 19th century, that was the preferred term to Jew. Now here we are at Kolami, which is a Reformed synagogue. I'm a Reformed rabbi. Someone asked me recently, are you a Reformed rabbi? <laughs> I said, no, I'm still at it. If you think about it for a moment, those of you who know anything about the history of Reformed Judaism in this country, you will note that the institutions of Reformed Judaism all, until relatively recently, had the word Hebrew in them. I was educated at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. Uh, the name of the National Movement of Reform Judaism was, until it changed its name to the Union for Reform Judaism, was the Union of American Hebrew Congregations. To this day, if you go to the largest Reform synagogue in Washington, D.C., it's the Washington Hebrew Congregation, Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation, the synagogue I used to serve in Atlanta was the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation. There's Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. All these are Hebrew congregations. Because in the 19th century, Hebrew 
was the nice word. Jew, not so much. But I want to go back to your question. And now I'm going to show you the Hebrew here, and I'm going to help you understand why we don't know. Vayomer Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt, said, Lam yaldot ha'ivriot, to the Hebrew midwives, but it can be translated as something else. Ready? It can also be translated as to the midwives of the Hebrew women. Now, this is a Rorschach. Many of the biblical commentators, including Rashi, the greatest of them all, believed that they were Hebrew women. But now I'm going to ask you a question, my friends. What would be the problem with these women being Hebrew women? This is a common sense question. Why, what, what's, why, would, they why would they do this? Now, Josephus and Philo, both of whom wrote in cultures heavily influenced by non-Jewish ideas, Josephus heavily influenced by the Romans, Philo heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, Philo who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, they believed that these women were actually Egyptian, even though their names are Semitic. Now I'm going to suggest to you the following. I'm going to suggest to you that if I have to cast my vote, you're going to guess, because I've already shown my hand, that I'm going to guess and vote for the fact that these were not Israelite women. These were Egyptian women. And if you see the rest of the story as it unfolds, it's almost funny. In verse 18, So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous. Before the midwife can come to them, they have given birth. It's actually rather amazing. It actually is saying something even darker than that. It is saying that you know how they are. They just, they multiply so fast. They're, they're not like us. They, they're like animals. So what you have now is, are you ready? You have a satire on ancient Egyptian anti-Semitism <laughs> written by a Jew imagining how ancient Egyptian anti-Semites must have felt about the Jews. And God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And God established households for the midwives because they feared God. Then Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every boy that is born you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now understand what's just happened here, my friends. It says that he established households for them. A couple of ways of looking at that. Number one, God built houses for them. 
or God made sure that they were able to have children themselves, right? In fact, the Midrash is really wonderful. It says that God built houses for them because during the plagues they were able to hide in the houses, nothing happened to them. Because in fact, they disappear from the story right after this. There's something else that happens. You see, first, Pharaoh had turned to Shifra and Pua, these technicians of birth, midwives, who fiendishly are being drafted into being technicians of death. Turn to them. But when that didn't work, what does Pharaoh have to do? Don't let this slip by. Only at that moment, Pharaoh turns Lakol Amo to his entire people and says that the boys will be thrown into the Nile but let every girl live. In other words, what you now have is the democratization of the death penalty. You now have the fact that it's no longer the professionals who are going to be involved. It's now the entire people. What you have is a terrifying story about genocide. But what you also have, if you pull back the curtain, is not only a story about genocide, but you have a story about civil disobedience. You have a story about women who actually said no. They resisted. I have to say to you that you won't be surprised to hear this. In high school, despite my height, six foot five, I did not play basketball. I was not an athlete. I was, however, an actor. And the role that I played that they're still speaking of at Bethpage High School, well, no, they're really not still speaking about that. There's no one there who would remember that. Is that I played Tiresias, the blind hermaphroditic prophet in Sophocles' classic Antigone. Now, Antigone is one of the most important plays in the entire Western canon. Antigone is the story of a woman who disobeys the uh, decree of King Creon. Her brother, who has started a war against the state, has been killed. Creon has decreed that the body should be left to lie in the field to be the food uh, for vultures. And Antigone disobeys him, buries her brother, and is herself executed. Literary historians believe that this story was written around the year 400 before the Common Era. Jewish literary historians, those who don't mind being called heretics, might suggest that if, in fact, the Torah as we have it was written during the period of the Babylonian exile, then this story was written, give or take a decade or so, at the same time. Which means that this story is, whether it knows it or not, a redemptive response to the story of Antigone, in which a heroine or two heroines don't die, but they live, despite the fact that they countermanded the demonic 
demands of Pharaoh. And the last thing I want to say to you that will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that these women were in fact not Israelites, not Hebrews, but were Egyptians is a little phrase that pops in here. Verse 17, I'm going to take you back to verse 17. Don't let yourself lose this. It says, the midwives fearing God. The midwives fearing God. And in verse 21, and God established households for the midwives because they feared God. Now, my friends, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard this phrase, to fear God? God-fearing. It's almost an old-fashioned American term. Your grandmother was a God-fearing woman. What does it mean? What does it mean? Help me. You've heard the phrase, what does it mean to you? She was Christian. Well, Schiffer and Poole were not Christians. You, you got that already, right? But we often hear it in America in a Christian context, right? You don't hear Booby being described as being a God-fearing woman. They might say of Booby, your grandmother was really from, she kept a good kosher home. You could eat off her plates at Pesach. They don't usually say about great aunt Becky to a God-fearing woman. In America, it sounds Christian. But what else does it mean? Yes, sir. Ah, it meant in ancient times those who abided by Jewish rituals and customs who were not Jewish. In America, God-fearing means a religious person. But number two, in the period of the Roman Empire, there were entire synagogues filled with what were called in those days Yirei Elohim, God-fearers. Now, by the way, to be God-fearing does not mean to be afraid of God. It means to be in awe of God. And these God-fearers were Gentiles. These were Gentiles who came to study Torah and they rejected idolatry. We're not sure if they did a whole lot more than that. We do know, by the way, that when Christianity was developing, those synagogues of God-fearers were the potential market for early Christianity. They were also the potential market for Judaism as it expanded. And what we have, my dear friends, is called competitive religion. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. We know about the God-fearers. 
In fact, we know that not a few of them were women who were God-fearers. They were not officially people who had converted to Judaism. They didn't go the distance probably because they were afraid of losing their inheritances. We know about them. But I'm going to bring it back for you. Here's the deal. In general, when the Torah says of someone that they are Yirei Elohim, or mostly Yirei Elohim, it essentially means that that person is a non-Israelite who nevertheless acts morally and ethically. Sometimes it refers to a Jew. When Abraham goes through the test of almost but not getting around to sacrificing Isaac, in the Akedah, we read on primetime, Rosh Hashanah, God says, now I know that you are Yarei Elohim. Now I know that you fear God. Look, it doesn't mean that you're a Gentile who fears God. Now we know that, okay, you've got your act together. But in general, if the text says that someone is Yarei Elohim, it means that they are a Gentile who has basic decency. When the Torah speaks of Amalek, who comes after us and kills us in the desert, it says, Velo yare Elohim, he did not fear God. It didn't mean that Amalek was not a frumayid. didn't mean that Amalek didn't keep kosher. didn't mean that Amalek was not, it meant that he was a terrible person. That's Shifra and Pua. I go back to Shifra and Pua all the time, my friends because they underscore for me one of the great truths, not only of Jewish history, but of moral history. Years ago, I was present when Victor Kugler received a humanitarian award from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. You should know the name Victor Kugler. If you know the name Anne Frank, you need to know the name Victor Kugler. Victor Kugler was the man who hid the Frank family. And he went to the podium and he said, he was already quite old, people asked me how I did what I did and I said, how could I not have done what I did? These were my friends. And when I was young I heard this and I was very impressed. But now as I've gotten older, I will say this. It does not take much courage to save your friends. It takes much more courage to save people you don't know. That's really where the moral rubber meets the road. Shifra and Pua. I will say to you for the rest of my life, if you ask me, I will say this on my deathbed, if you ask me, they were non-Israelites who nevertheless, in the words of Spike Lee, did the right thing. But now it's time for us to meet our third and indisputably Gentile woman. Are you ready? You've met her before. Pharaoh's daughter. Turn the page. Oh, by the way, before we 
move on to Pharaoh's daughter. You've all been wonderful. But in order for you to get your money's worth, you need to ask me any questions that you might have about good old Shifrin Pua before we move on to Pharaoh's daughter. Questions about Shifra and Pua. You ready for one more factoid about her? A number of years ago, Rabbi Al Axelrad, who was the Hillel rabbi at Brandeis University, established the annual Shifra and Pua Award for civil disobedience. I love them because they invent the power of no. Well, now you know the story, Exodus chapter 2, page 348. Everyone knows this story. It's the story of Pharaoh's daughter. It's the story about how Moses' mother puts him into a basket and sets the basket down the river Nile. Verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. All right, number one. For a book that is called Sefer Shemot, the book of names, does this woman have a name? Does the daughter of Pharaoh have a name? No name. By the way, the rabbis will give her the name Bitya or Batya, which means the daughter of God. We'll understand why. Number two, you may accuse the biblical author of sloppy editing. Notice what it says. Her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. And you're likely to say to yourself, wait, hold Rabbi, wait, hold on. First it said that she had maidens, and then it said that they, well, did they disappear? They must have, because there's only a slave girl to go fetch the basket. I'm going to show you a great pun in a few moments. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. She saw that it was a child. In fact, the sensory stuff here is a little bit messed up. That she saw his cries and said, this must be a Hebrew child. Rabbi Tzvi Yecheskel Michelson, who was one of the last rabbis of the Warsaw Ghetto who died in Treblinka, said that Moses was crying so loudly, not only could she hear him over the roars of the waves of the river, but Moses was crying so powerfully because in his cries could be heard all the cries of all Jewish children throughout history. Rabbi Michelson knew the cries of Jewish children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, and who, by the way, is Moses' sister? 
Miriam, she's not named here either. Shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. Now, I'm going to give you a trivia question that you can use at your Passover seders. Are you ready? No one will get this right. Question. Who was the first Israelite to go free? Who was the first Israelite to no longer be a slave? You would think it would be Moses. Oh, thank you. Since she was being paid, she was no longer a slave. My dear friends, the answer to the question, who was the first slave to go free? Moses' mother. She got paid her wages. Who was the first liberator, therefore, of slaves? Pharaoh's daughter. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, who made him her son. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Min hamayim mishitihu. Now we're going to have to ask ourselves the following question, my dear friends. This is going to take a long time to talk about, so I'm just going to tease you with it. You're, you're likely to ask yourselves the question, how does an Egyptian princess know enough Hebrew to name this kid Moshe. In fact, many people have suggested over the decades that the name Moses itself is an Egyptian name. And in fact, good old Sigmund Freud believed that Moses was actually an Egyptian prince who decided to change his life. The second thing I'm going to say to you is this. I'm going to say to you that this child is called Moshe. Question. Trivia question. You won't know the answer because most people won't. The mother of this infant gives birth to this baby. What did she call him? Kid? The baby? In fact, the Midrash says that he had several names before he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, which, by the way, was the first single mother adoption in history. One source says that the lad's name was Avigdor, which usually is the Hebrew name if someone's name is Victor. But in fact, the rabbis say that Moses had several names that his mother called him, but in deference and out of respect to Pharaoh's daughter, we only know him by the name that she gave him. When I speak about this being the first single parent adoption in history, it's important for us to know something. 
A number of years ago, I gave a sermon on this Torah portion in honor of adopted parents and foster parents. And I re remembered that there was a bumper sticker years ago that I saw called Superman was a foster child. In fact, if you know the story of Superman, then you know that it is possible that good old Schuster and Siegel, the creators of Superman, might have borrowed the outline of the story of Moses. Think about it. A child is sent away from a planet and is adopted by people, and then we know nothing about his childhood and his young, young years, and then he grows up to be a big hero. That's Superman. By the way, that story is found in numerous versions in mythology around the world. There's nothing particularly Jewish about it. But it is a story about people heroically putting themselves out. And that's something I want to bring you back to. When it says here that she spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it, the word for slave girl is ama, and the word for arm is also ama, arm. Yeah, same, same word. And therefore... You can read this as, and she stretched out her arm to fetch it. And there is an ancient Midrash that says that at the moment that she sees this child floating down the Nile, like Plastic Man, that old comic book hero, her arm magically elongates and stretches. and She's able to get him, which says that heroism means when you stretch yourself beyond what you can even do. Questions or comments before I bring you to the end of our conversation today about the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, let me repeat that question. The question was, you were going to tell us about the Hebrew name that she was given, Batya, the daughter of God. The Rabbi Salkin Midrash on that, which was written centuries ago, is that her father, who was a god, disowned her. And therefore, God adopted her as she had adopted Moses. I also want to say something else. On the eve of the march for our lives, I want to just give you a basic understanding of where we are in American history right now. And I'm a stranger in this town. I have no idea what you think about guns. Probably some of you own guns. That's okay. That's, it's not about owning guns. It's about safety for our kids and for our country. I have to tell you, I won't be the first person to tell you this, I hope that you are as impressed and moved and inspired as I am by the voices of our young people who are speaking out. I addressed a candlelight vigil several weeks ago. I live in Broward County, Florida. That's where Parkland is, a half an hour away from where I live. And I said to the kids who were there, at the risk of sounding like an old man, I'm going to tell you, when I was your age, we marched because we didn't want, you, we didn't want kids to die in the jungles. It's your turn to march because we don't want kids to die in the classrooms. And when I think about these young people who have really lifted this conversation to a new level, kids who went to Tallahassee 
And they got the law in Florida changed. It's not a perfect law. This is whole mishigas about teachers carrying guns. My mother of blessed memory was a school teacher. I'm having a lot of trouble imagining my mother, especially in her later years, packing heat. But I have to tell you, it's the kids who did it. And I want to share something with you. I wrote another book called The Gods Are Broken, The Hidden Legacy of Abraham. I'm speaking about it later, which I talk about the legend of Abraham breaking his father's idols. I write a history of iconoclasm, of Jews breaking idols. And I mention that the Midrash says that Abraham was 13 years old when he did that. And then we have this story about Pharaoh's daughter, who rebels against her father as well. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you have a rebellious child, you should execute him. The rebellious child has to be a glutton and a drunkard. All right, fine. But then the rabbis say that there's no record anywhere of any rebellious child ever being executed. And I submit to you, my friends, that Judaism, the Jewish people, came into existence because of a rebellious child, and the Jews got out of Egypt because of a rebellious child, meaning the daughter of Pharaoh, who rebelled against her father, knowing full well that this was a Hebrew child. Have you ever asked yourselves, and this gets graphic, what did it take for righteous Christians and Muslims during the Shoah to save Jewish lives? I'm going to paint for you a very graphic picture because I think we have to remember this. Deborah Dvork, in her book about adolescence during the Shoah, paints for us the following picture. I need for you to go back 75 years. In particular, I would like the women here to go back 75 years, not really 75 years. I want you to think about what teenage girls' lives and women's lives were like in the most intimate way 75 years ago. Here goes. Imagine a Polish family taking in a Jewish family and hiding them. And the Jewish family has a teenage daughter, an 11-year-old, let us say, a 12-year-old. And let us imagine that this is a Polish husband and wife who are already in their 70s. You got the picture? Now what's going to happen with that teenage girl? Knowing science and biology as we do, what's going to happen? No surprise. She's going to menstruate. Back in the old days, they didn't have Tampax. They had, I am told, these elaborate contraptions, undergarments that women wore. And those were not disposable. They were washable. And so here's the story. That laundry has to be washed. 
you're an elderly couple in Poland, you can explain a lot of the clothing that's hanging on the clothesline. But if you're already a woman who has gone through menopause, you're going to have a lot of trouble explaining this undergarment that is hanging from the clothesline, there are no dryers, as a flag proclaiming that all of a sudden there is a girl living in this house. Do you understand what I'm saying? We never think about that. We never think about the courage that it took. There were far more than we thought there are, and there are far fewer than there needed to be. And that's the story of these women. Shifra and Pua and Batya, Pharaoh's daughter. Without those women, we don't get out of Egypt. We often talk about Miriam. Miriam was the cheerleader. Miriam sang and led the women in song as they crossed the Sea of Reeds, also known as the Red Sea. But Shifra and Pua, they deserve a place at our Seder. Batya, Bitya, Pharaoh's daughter, she deserves a place at our Seder as well. Three guys are fishing. And as they're fishing, they see a baby floating down the river. One guy wades in and takes the baby out of the river. About 10 minutes later, another baby comes floating down the river. Second guy walks into the water, takes the baby out. Third guy puts down his fishing rod, starts walking upstream. His friends say, where are you going? And he says, you guys can stay here if you want to. I'm walking upstream to find out who's throwing babies in the river. It's not enough to simply save the babies. This guy is walking upstream to figure out who's doing that. He wants to fix this at its source. The moral life, my friends, is fixing the problem at its source. Shifra and Pua did that. Pharaoh's daughter, Bitya or Batya, did that. And if we are their heirs and heiresses, we will do that as well. I thank you for your attention, and may I be the first to wish all of you a Chag Sameach, a Zisen Pesach, a good Pesach. And I would be happy if you have any questions, comments, arguments, to discuss them with you at this time. Thank you all. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org. 
and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.